Good morning. Good morning. morning. So good to have you here with us this morning. Here, those that are here in the service and those that are joining us online, we're praying that God does his work in us and does his work through us as we glory in him, as we magnify him. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, go to our church website or grab uh, emails from the email list. If you're not on the email list, just send a note into admin at thechapelnj.org, and uh, you can get on our prayer list, and you can get updates as well of things that are going on in our church. I just want to uh, focus on something that is uh, happening in our community. Um, it's happening in our country, it's happening in our community, and it's impacting our church as well, and it's the COVID thing that's going around, viruses. And this virus has played havoc in a number of people's lives. And so we want to be mindful of the fact that that is happening in our community. If it's happening around us, it's going to impact our church as well. And for each one of you, what we're going to encourage you to do is to do what is best for you. Uh, you follow your, your medical professional's advice. You take precautions in the way that you would do it. Uh, we as a church are going to be here to help and support you through this time. Uh, we have uh, decided to kind of put on hold for our next week or two, a couple of weeks, uh, Sunday school and some of the other fellowship things that we do. Uh, that, but once again, we're here to support you. We want to be here to be able to speak the word and to be able to encourage you during this time. As you got a chance to look at the prayer request list, you saw a lot of people, a number of people on there that are having some significant issues as well. So what I want you to do is this. As you get that prayer list, I don't want you to become overwhelmed with fear. What I want you to do is go to God in prayer. Lift your friends and your family members and our church members up in prayer to the God that is absolutely and totally in control of everything that occurs. One of the passages that you've heard me say oftentimes, it's one of these, it's our family passage, and it's one of those passages we go to time after time to support us when things go haywire around us. And it's in Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41 says this in verse 10. It says, fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And one of the things that God does in the midst of fear is he either gives you a proclamation of truth, he gives you a promise, or more importantly, he gives you himself. Because he said, fear not, I am. And I want you to focus on the fact that the God that we serve is the great I am. He is sovereign and in complete control. There's not a molecule in this universe that God is not in control of. Nothing happens in our lives that has not been filtered through the loving hand of God. So as you go through crazy times, I want you to ground yourself in the fact that there's a sovereign God. He's not only a sovereign God, but he's a wise God, infinitely wise. He's given you his word. Let his word so comfort you during these times. I go back to passages of scripture and reminding myself of the proclamation and the promises as I go through these difficult times. And I not only want to focus on his provision, his power, his um, sovereign work in our lives, not only his infinite wisdom, but his perfect love for you as a believer, that he loves you and he loves each one of his children. He loves you enough that he was going to send his son to live and to die for you. So, so do not get overwhelmed. Uh, last thing I will say this before I go to prayer is this. 
Um, COVID seems to be the big thing, but there are many people, if you look at our prayer list, there are many struggles that people are having, uh, financial struggles, family relational struggles, grief, loss, uh, cancer, heart issues. So let's not let one issue become the central issue in our lives, but we want God to become the central issue in our lives. So, so let me go to prayer. I'm going to spend a little bit more time praying for these specific things. And let's um, spend some time there. So, Lord, as um, I pray that we could adore you and look at you as an amazing God. Very honestly, Father, we don't deserve anything. But you've given us yourself. You are the, the great sustainer. You are the, the loving God, the faithful God, the steadfast God. You are here with us, Lord. I praise you for that. Lord, I, I confess that far too often my eyes get so distracted by what happens around me. I get so fearful, Lord. I get so insecure at times, Lord. Lord, please forgive me for failing to remember that you're the great I am. Please forgive me for, for forgetting the fact that you are sovereign and that you're in control and that you're loving. Please forgive me for listening to the world rather than listening to your word, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be people that are grounded in your word. Help us to be filled by your spirit, led by your word, glorying in your son, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the provision that you've given us in Christ. We thank you for the provision that you've given us in your word. And we thank you for the provision that you've given us in this body of believers. And Father, right now, some of our believers, some of our people from our church are going through difficult times, Lord. I, I pray especially for last um, Lord, uh, just served with him on, on Good Friday, and now he is, Chris, Christmas Eve, Lord, and now he is going through such difficult trials right now, Father, probably things that we don't even understand. I pray for his family. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray for wisdom for the doctors. I pray for healing for his body, Father. I pray that you would bring him back to us in full and completion. Lord, I pray for uh, Kathy and Ralph, Father, as they've been struggling as well. Uh, Lord, Kathy took a fall. I pray for her right now. I, I pray that you would bring healing to her, Father, as, as she's been going through trials and as Ralph has been going through these trials, Father. I, I pray that you would root, root out this COVID, Father, and root out the struggles that they're having. Lord, we continue to pray for many in our congregation that are dealing with sickness right now. Tom Camella, Father, and another one from our group that is struggling, Father, that's been in the hospital. Lord, I pray for he, I pray for his family. I pray that pray comfort there, Lord. I pray for Victor Kelly, Father. I pray for the injury that he had to his hand. I pray for healing for his hand. I pray for he and Diana as they've been trying to wrestle through what are the next steps for Diana and the next steps for her work and what the doctors need to do there. I pray for the Alpaws, Father. And uh, going through Christmas season with the great tragedy that they had in their family just weeks before Christmas. I pray for Kim Jones' mom, Lord. I pray for Fran Pilch's friend, Darlene. Father, I pray for the Hoyts, Father. I pray for Gary with his cancer. I pray for our admin, Dave Mercer, Lord, who's been struggling with some heart issues and has more tests and some results that are going to be coming back tomorrow. Lord, there's so many requests that are not even on my list that you know about. I pray that you would do your work to bring healing and restoration. So Lord, I, I pray finally 
as we come to begin this service. I pray that we'd be reminded not to fear. I pray that we'd be reminded that you're the great I am. I pray that we'd be reminded of your presence, your personal relationship with us, your power, your provision, but more importantly, your preserving grace, Lord. Give us that grace today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody, would you join and sing with me? Who breaks? Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless? In awe and wonder, the King of glory, the King above all kings. Amazing grace, this is amazing grace. This is unfailing love, that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. I sing for all that you've done for me. Who brings our chaos back into order? Who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes the orphan a son and daughter? The king of glory, the king above all kings. And who rules? Who rules the nations with truth and justice Shines like the sun in all of its brilliance The King of glory, the King above all kings This is amazing grace This is unfailing love That you would take my place I sing for all that you've done for me. Sing, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And worthy is the King who conquered the grave. 
fear when I fear my faith will fail Christ will hold me fast when the tempter would prevail he will hold me fast I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold he must hold me fast he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so Those he saves, those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast, precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast, he'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. I am at such a cost He will hold me fast He will hold me fast He will hold me fast For my Savior loves me so He will hold me 
before my life. Before my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight. When he comes at Father's throne. He left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bless. Helpless rain 
Spirit. is calling Have you come to the end of yourself Do you thirst for a drink from the well Jesus is calling Oh come to the altar the Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness 
was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave behind. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing alleluia. Christ is risen. We bow down before him. For he is Lord. As you wait for the crown, tell the world of the treasure you found. Jesus is calling. Yes, we hear, Lord. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to 
altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord, this morning we give you praise and glory as we sing that your blood is precious to us, Lord. It is the only thing that can save, the only thing that can redeem. We had no, no chance of breaking out of our metaphoric jail, Lord, of sin. But your eye designed a plan. You had a plan in place to break us free. Lord, there are problems in this world, and that's an understatement. And Lord, some of us have it worse than others right now. Some of us are in fear, Lord, of the world. And there are those around the world who are living in fear constantly. But Lord, you have a bigger plan. Come what, come what may, we have to trust you. That's what you call us to. You ask us to trust you. Even when we're seeing all the options and going, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to be good for me. You have a plan and we need to trust you. Just like the saints of old, Lord, for many of them, the outcome was not necessarily what they would have wanted. But they looked to you and said, your will be done. God, as a church today, may we say that. Your will be done in our lives, God. We trust you. Hold us fast, Lord. We're lost without you. Lord, as we start 2022, Lord, it's good to sing together. It's good to hear voices all singing in unison today, Lord. We're looking forward to what you bring in 2022. And we're asking that you'd help us to trust you. Please now be with Pastor Tim as he brings your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. little ones that are going to head out for junior church, they can head there at this time. Uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're uh, today and at the beginning of this new year, moving into uh, the second portion of this very beautiful letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Let's begin reading in verse 1, and I think we'll read down through verse uh, 13 initially, okay? Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, some of your translations are going to say, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, same idea, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, <clears throat> one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, 
the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the whole body might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, walking worthy, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, this is a, a very fascinating and beautiful portion of scripture. Uh, I want you to note that Paul begins by saying, in light of this, or therefore, I urge you as the prisoner of the Lord. So there is a dependence upon what Paul has already said in this letter. So if you take chapters one through three and read through them, and we've preached through them for you, you see that it is loaded with what we would call very dense and exalted theology. Paul, through this, has given praise to God for his work and his saving plan in Christ, through which he has secured and created the church, meaning he has made our salvation possible and he has begun this new community that he has talked about rather extensively called the church or the body of Christ. It is in context a diverse community, people that come from different statuses, different races, and different moral conditions. But they have been all brought into this new work of God, this new community. I think that's probably the strongest word or a new family that God is building. And here's the question that you automatically have to wrestle with. I mean, if you've been married, you know that bringing two people together can be challenging, right? We come from different backgrounds. We have different experiences. We have different moral conditions. And we, marriage, bringing two together can be a complex and difficult work. Okay, the church is much more complicated, much more diverse, uh, much more unique than any marriage situation that you could ever imagine. And so as Paul writes to the church, he, he, he's going to be encouraging them in this practical section of the book to thrive together, to love the unity that God has called them to. So the question really is, how can the church survive and ultimately thrive? How can we exist together? And then how can we become everything that God has called us to be? Okay. So the goal for the church in Paul's understanding is not just that the church exists and gets along, but that the church exists by God's grace, that it gets along, but that it also thrives and has an impact on itself and then on the world around it. Okay, so Paul is really giving a call to action here, and he's going to focus on this idea of practical now theology. So the first three chapters are very dense, heavy theology that now is going to inform our daily living. Okay, I have to know who God is. I have to know who I am in Christ. And then I can begin to live the life that he has called me to live. And so Paul's kind of moving through that sort of progression. Okay, and I've entitled my sermon, Till We All. And that's a phrase that comes up, I believe it's down in verse 13. He has this vision of all believers growing to become the people that God designs for them to be so that they can then impact the world in which he has called them to live. So verse one, Paul starts out as a prisoner for the Lord. If you go back to chapter 
3 and verse 13, you also see that Paul's talking about his prison experience. And he says to the believers, don't lose heart because of the suffering I'm going through. And Paul instead cast his difficult experience as being for the benefit or advantage of the church. That's how Paul sees his personal suffering. And so he brings that up again here as he writes to them. He says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. That is for the benefit of what God is doing. And he says then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. So I'm going to break this text down into three pieces. I'm going to talk about the call of God upon the church, the resources of God to fulfill that call, and then the goal that we are to pursue together. Okay, so first let's begin looking at this idea of this call to guard the unity of the church. So the idea of a call in the Bible typically refers to a divine summons. Okay, it's not God giving you a suggestion to follow him. It's a divine summons. It comes from God with the authority of God that is meant to compel and attract change and difference in your life. Okay, so Paul says to them that they are to live a life that is consistent with worthy of the calling that they have received. Now, it is very clear as you read through the first three chapters that the calling they have received is to place faith in Christ and then to exemplify the righteousness of Christ to the world in which they live. That's the clear call that he's given. And here they're called to live worthy, fittingly or appropriately of the calling that God has given to them, what he has called them to be. So here's the question. How can we live a unified life as the unique body of Christ, this new community? How can that happen? And what Paul is going to say is that the attitude that I come into this community with is critical to our mission. Okay, so he's going to address the idea of attitude first. Notice what he says. He says, I urge you to live worthy by being humble by being, I'm losing my spot. Live a life worthy. Okay, be completely humble, gentle, and patient. Okay, so the idea of humility means walking in, in, in without pride and without arrogance. And I think most of us know that pride can have devastating consequences on groups of people. Right? It can be very destructive if I make myself the center of what's going on. And God in this text warns us to, and I love the way he says this, to always be humble or to be completely humble. Then secondly, to be patient with each other and then to be bearing with one another in love. Okay? To be patient and bearing with one another in love has the idea of putting up with awkward or difficult characteristics, okay? And I think most of us, in, as we relate to each other, we realize that, man, people are different, right? People have different uh, expectations. They have different desires. Uh, they long for different things. They have different ways of relating. And Paul calls us to be 
bearing with one another in love, to be patient, to allow for weaknesses and failures and differences that are part of life together. It's one of the things that you definitely have to learn in the context of marriage, right? My wife has had to learn to put up with a lot of weaknesses and oddities in my life, okay? Things that make me tick that she willingly accepts for the sake of the unity of that relationship, okay? So Paul says, uh, that we are to be humble and then the idea that we are to be gentle and that we are to be patient, bearing with each other in love, allowing for weaknesses, failures, and differences. And then verse 3, he pushes this a little further. So be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other. That idea is to be long-suffering, okay, to put up with over an extended period of time. And then verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think it's fascinating. Paul does not charge the church with creating the unity of the church. Paul says that the Spirit of God is the one who creates unity in the church. And what you and I are called to do then is to assist in protecting or maintaining that unity that God has called us to. He's called us into one body. He wants us to act in a unified fashion, in a loving fashion towards one another. Okay? So the call is to make every effort, and that's in the present tense, that means it is, a, it is an ongoing obligation of believers to care for one another. Okay, to be gentle with one another, to be patient with one another, to not allow pride to negatively affect our relationships, to learn to appreciate the things that make other people in our life unique. And that's hard, but it is the call of this text. And it's in a sense like this in verse 3. Paul is saying, make every effort. That is to say, do all that you can to guard that which binds you together. Okay, and I think it's interesting in this text that he uses the words humble, gentle, and patient because if you flip over to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, you find that those attributes are supernaturally driven, right? Those are part of the set of seven fruits of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit simply is this. It is the evidence of God's presence in his church. So Paul calls them to guard the unity that God has given by practicing spirit-driven social, social virtues. Meaning the Spirit of God comes to instruct us, to teach us, to guide us in how we can get along and maintain a unified front as the body of Christ so that we can maximize our impact in the world that God has called us to live in. Okay, so the first uh, thought that he gives is this call to guard the unity. And then in verses four through six, it's a very interesting portion of scripture because what it does is it gives us the broad basis for unity in the body of Christ. Notice what he says. He says, there is, and, and, and let me just say this real quick. It's likely that these verses four through six were part of a common, if I say the idea of a common confession or of a, a, a catechism, if you were raised in uh, a more formal setting church-wise, you probably learned a catechism. And there were certain truths that could, would be repeated. Now, whether that was a true confession of your heart or not is a totally separate issue, right? 
But you would go and you, you would say that confession, something like the Apostles' Creed, I believe, okay, or we believe. And we would say that, and, and the idea was that that was the ground of unity, okay? And the same thing is true in the body of Christ. There are certain truths that are critical to our existence as the body of Christ. And here's what Paul says. He says there is one body... Okay, and it's fascinating that he starts there, because if you go back to Ephesians 2.16, it says that he's taken Jews and Gentiles, which were the most diverse people on the planet, and he's brought them together into one body, the body of Christ. Okay, so the first thing he says to the church in Ephesus, because he understands the biggest struggle for them, is that we've come from such different backgrounds, how can we live together and get along? That becomes the question. So the first thing he reminds them of is there is one body. We are part of a larger organism, not an organization. We are part of a living organism called the body of Christ. Okay, and we are parts of that. Also, he says there is one spirit. And if you go back to chapter 1, you'll find that by one spirit, we were marked as children of God. All of us come into this relationship with God by the same means. The Spirit of God, at the point of our salvation, identifies us as a child of God. So we have that common family origin, okay? And he says we have also one hope. One result of our faith in Christ is that we are longing for the fullness of the blessing of God and our salvation to be revealed. He also says we have one Lord, that is, one who came, died on the cross to rescue us. We have one faith, that is a simple confession of trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our hope for salvation. And then he says we have one baptism, okay? And the idea of one baptism is the expression of our faith in the cross work of Christ, right? So baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. So Paul's giving this church in Ephesus, and therefore to us as well, the ground of what makes us one, okay? And Paul's saying there are numerous things that drive the unity that is present within the body of Christ. The last thing he notes in verse 6 is that we have one God and Father of all. And, and on this one, then, he starts to expand out. We have one God and Father of all who is over all, who is through all, and in all. I want you to pause for a second and think about that. That's, that's a statement that at first blush, you might say, I'm not quite sure what that means. But just step back and look at it. One God and Father of all, which means we all belong to one what? One family. We have, in terms of our newness, our new walk, we have a common origin or starting point. We have been brought into a family. We are in a permanent relationship. You know, people will say sometimes you can choose your friends and you can choose your in-laws, but you can't choose your family, right? Your family is something you're born into. And Paul is emphasizing for them, you're part of the family of God. And what should drive our getting along as a witness to the world that's watching is the fact that God has called us together. And God is in everything we're doing. And he's through everything we're doing. And for me, I don't, when I read that, that gives a sense of hope. 
And it, it reminds me, when I read that verse, the echo in my mind was Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is everybody. But who can effectively be against us as the family of God? And the answer is nobody. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It doesn't mean they won't come because certainly the assault against the people of God through the ages has often been strong, but ineffective. Because guess what? Here we are today proclaiming the truth of God's word for the glory of God in an acknowledgement of the fact that he has called us together as his family and he is, he is saturating or permeating all that we do with his presence and with his power. Folks, that's what it is to be a Christian. People often think about a Christian is someone who doesn't do this, who does do this, who goes to a certain building on Sunday morning. They do this, they do that. That's not what a Christian is. That's what a Christian does. What is a Christian? A Christian is part of a supernatural community that God has invaded by the person of his spirit, has drawn together through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, in which he is making a difference for his glory. What gives me hope is not my ability. It's not your capacity. It's not our faithfulness. What gives us hope is that God is for us, that he is in it and through it. He's, he saturates everything that we're doing. And when God comes, he comes with everything that he is, with all of his power. Christianity is about a relationship with God, about a uniquely unified, supernatural community. So the church is the body of Christ, but it's also called the temple of God. It's the place where God makes himself known to the world in which I live. That's why Paul so passionately says, I urge you, I call you. And this idea of, of exhorting them is, is a warm but urgent call. To be aware that there are things in each of our lives, certain characteristics that could threaten what God is doing. Certain sinful tendencies that if they're not brought in check with the work of the Spirit of God could devastate or damage what God is doing. And so Paul calls them to realize that they're, they're part of something that's much bigger than themselves, that their attitude in that community is critical, but they need, as they, as they wrestle with being the person that God has called them to be in terms of their outlook on others, he reminds them, God's for you. God is involved in what he's doing. He is building his church. And as we cooperate with him and walk in the fruit of the spirit, we begin to experience this idea of dynamic life together that can be filled with joy and make, can make a difference in the world that we live in. And all of that out of what? Out of a group of people who apart from Christ would probably not have any relationships whatsoever. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I've often, I've hung out with certain Christian friends from this church. And I say to them, you know, if we weren't Christians, like, would we be doing this? You understand what I'm saying? Like, would we be hanging out? Because sometimes it's not any of the earthly things that are binding us together. It's the fact that we have a common relationship in Christ. You're my brother. You're my sister. And Paul says to us, remember that. And guard that. 
Because the church is the means by which God is speaking his truth to the world. So value what God has called you into. A divine summons was given. You responded by grace through faith to the work of Christ. The spirit of God marked you in his community. And God is permeating that family for its success and for his glory. That's a powerful vision. And Paul says to us, do everything you can to maintain that unity. You know what that means? That means at times I'm going to have to sacrifice my opinion for the sake of the whole. Sometimes I'm I'm going to have to put aside my preference, my desires, so that God's work can happen. Okay? So it's a very, very powerful and and, and, and practical uh, text. Now, what does it assume if the text says that we're to be humble, gentle, and patient? What's assumed in that? It means that while we're living together... There are going to be times when we struggle with being the people that God wants us to be. It means that there are going to be times when there is need for resolution of conflict. It's the idea of gentleness, right? When offended, don't be abrasive. Don't overreact. We are about something much larger and much more precious than one relationship. Okay? And sometimes I got to kill my pride and put on by the spirit, the garment of humility so that we can get along. Okay. And, and one of the things that's helpful is if you're newer to our church, we have a secret. Okay. We're not perfect. Okay. We don't have any assumptions that we're perfect. Okay. We're broken people who have found help by the grace of God. And he is at work in us. And that mystifies us. Okay? But we're grateful. That is, he is at work in us for his glory. The idea of, of need for resolution assumes that correction is needed at times. That's realistic. And Paul in this text gives us a way forward of how to live together. Be humble. Be gentle. Strive to maintain the unity. Do everything you can. To keep the church strong. Okay, so that's the call. Second thing we're going to look at is the resources that God gives to fulfill that call. Because it's fascinating, isn't it? He gives us this beautiful picture of who we are as one in Christ, in the Spirit, in the Father. He calls us to live in humility and meekness, which assumes that sometimes we struggle with the opposite of that, we struggle with pride and, and brashness and, and we can be weakening the community that God has called us to so gloriously be part of. So what does God give us to help us be the church that he wants us to be? And verses 7 through 14 kind of, uh, or 7 through 13 laid this out for us. And what the text is essentially saying is we have for this purpose God-given resources. And I want you to notice Verses 1 through 6 really put an emphasis on unity, right? That's the picture. And now he's going to move into a topic that relates more to diversity, to the uniqueness of individual parts. So we're part of something large, but in that larger thing, we have unique functions. And, and the analogy that's often used in Scripture is the analogy of the body. I don't need multiple hearts. I have one heart. I have two kidneys. I have two hands. I have two eyes. 
uh, one nose, thank God, one mouth, okay? And each of those parts are integrated. And each of those parts relates to the other and has a unique function apart from which my body cannot be healthy. Okay? So, so Paul calls us to be the body of Christ, and then he's going to tell us that God gives us resources in the midst of the struggle to be the body of Christ. Okay, so let's begin looking at verse 7 then. He says, to each one of us. <clears throat> now, I want you to notice he's moved from the group context to individuals, right? From the body to each one. He has given each one of us grace. That word literally is charis. We get our word charismatic from that word. Okay, it's, it's, the theme is the idea of gifting and uh, abilities that God is giving, capacities. If you, if you want to know the best definition, I think, of a spiritual gift, it is a capacity to do what God calls you to do. Okay, a capacity to fulfill your God-given calling. And all of these... As individuals fulfill their God-given calling, the church is enabled to fulfill its call, verses 1 through 6. Okay? So God calls us to something that apart from him, let's be honest, I can't do that. I can't get along with people. I'm too selfish. I'm too proud. I'm too abrasive. Unless God does something and enables what he desires. So the resources that he gets, it says to each one he gives a capacity. Everybody in the context of the body of Christ has a God-given role, a task, a purpose for which God saved you and put you in his body, the church. And that is, and notice this in verse 7, each one has been given a gift as Christ apportioned it. Okay, so each one has a gift 1 Corinthians 12 says that each gift is for the common good or for the mutual benefit. Okay, and I want you to understand something. The gift that God gives you is not to make you significant. Okay, sometimes people are pursuing gifts, spiritual gifts, because they want to be somebody. The purpose of gifts is not to be somebody. The purpose of gifts is to go low and serve. One another. It's a divine, God-given capacity to encourage and grow and benefit people around you. It's for the mutual good. And then it is, they are sovereignly distributed. So the end of verse 7 says, those gifts come as Christ apportioned it. As he, the idea of apportioning is to, the word comes from the word metronome, okay? That you use with pianos, am I right? Uh, did I say that right? Metronome? Okay. All right, metronome. It, it, it's a measure, okay? And that's the root of the Greek word. Jesus is measuring out as the sovereign Lord of the church that he saved. He's measuring out divinely inspired, divinely driven capacities so that we can rise up as a strong body, as one with many parts. So hopefully you start to feel the responsibility that comes with that. Each individual has a role in making the body of Christ be what God intended for it to be. Not to make each individual feel significant, but to make the whole functional and healthy as a light to the nations for the glory of God. Okay, the calling is so much higher than personal status. 
okay? The, the gifts are sovereignly distributed. And then verse 8, he makes a fascinating statement. He's quoting from Psalm 68. He says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, it's interesting. If you go back and study Psalm 68 this afternoon, you're going to see parallel. You're going to see, let me say it this way, similarities and dissimilarities. Okay, and all I'm going to say right now is that that Psalm 68 it, it is a picture of God delivering his people from Egypt, leading captives in freedom, right? And then moving to them to a place where he is their God. Okay, it, it, it's exalting in the, in, the, in, the, in the deliverance of God and the gifts that God is giving to them. It's applied here to the work of Christ who went low for our saving. And in his work on the cross, he is delivering people and then gifting people and employing them in the work that he's doing. That's what God is doing with us, folks. That is a beautiful and glorious calling. Jesus is the triumphant king, delivering and then pouring out blessing, giving gifts to his people for our benefit and for the success of his spiritual family. So he gives, first of all, as resources, gifted people. That's broadly speaking about the context of church life. Secondly, it says this, that he's giving gifted leaders. Okay? So verse 11. So 7 and 8 talk about gifts given to individuals. 11 through 13 say this. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Okay, now, let me just break this first section down, okay? We have, in this context of Ephesians, the, the role of apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2 are designated as foundational gifts, okay? They were part of that establishing of the church, Okay, and there's some debate over how much of those roles function today. But we know that the role of prophets in the Old Testament and the role of apostles in the New Testament had a unique relationship with Christ. Okay, and they were foundational preachers. They were used by God to bring revelation to the church. Okay, and then he gives to the church evangelists and pastors and teachers. So you see foundational gifts first. And then sustaining gifts. Okay? One is an obstacle, or in, in the context of the sustaining gifts, you see that there are evangelists who have the gift of seeing people come into relationship with Christ. They're in the realm of the medical terminology, they would be the obstetricians. Okay? They specialize in birthing. And then pastors and teachers work in the realm of pediatrics. Okay? The idea of Seeing a child become healthy and grow up. Okay? So moving from being an infant to becoming mature. That's that second role for pastors and teachers. And I think that's the main focus of this text. Okay? So there are foundational gifts and there are sustaining gifts. There are gifted people and then there are people that God calls to be leaders in the context of church life. Now here's what I want you to see. And this is the question. Why did God do that. To what end does God give gifted people and then gifted teachers? What is the role or function of a pastor 
in the context of church life? What is the role of a teacher in the context of church life? What is it ultimately aiming at? I want you to notice what he says in verse 12, because this will help you to understand that question. So he gives these gifts to equip his people for works of service. So that means the role of leadership is to communicate biblical truth so that people grow up so that they can then begin to serve one another. You get the picture? Okay, so he says they're, they're, they do this to equip and to aid each other so that the whole body is built up. And the real thrust, I think, of verse 12 is this, that we are, as the body of Christ, better together than we are when we are alone. And that is by God's sovereign design. He has given us unique gifts so that we stay unified in representing him to the world around us. There is no person who has all the gifts, and there are no gifts that are for every person. There is diversity in the body of Christ, of experience and of giftedness and of callings. And God is enabling all of those giftednesses and callings. I don't even know if giftedness is, is a word, but it is now, okay? All right, why does he do it? Verse 13. Okay, well, first thing he says in verse 12, so that the whole body would be built up. You know what that means, folks? That means no one should be left behind. No one. It means there are no unimportant people in the body of Christ. No unimportant people. Nobody is unnecessary. I'm going to tell you something. One of the lies from the evil one is that you're not adequate, you're not sufficient, your input, your influence doesn't matter. Satan comes to kill and destroy. If he can steal your purpose, it's as though you were dead. Okay? Christ did not call you to that. Christ called you into the church where he wants you to learn truth and begin to live out in the context of your spiritual gifts, minister to, ministering to, and building up the whole body of Christ. And I love the way verse 13 begins. And this is where I took my sermon title from. Until we all. Folks, do you realize that is a comprehensive and exhaustive vision for the church? Until everyone within the context of the body of Christ begins to know, understand, and employ the capacities that God has given them to be the people of God together. Okay? So there is this very beautiful calling and the calling is that we are grounded in truth we are transformed by truth we become more and more like jesus and we begin to make the difference in the world that god has called us to make gifts are not about me they're about about mutual benefit and that comes down to an important issue doesn't it if i don't love people and I mean that in the, in the broadest sense in the context of the body of Christ. If I don't love people, I, it is likely that I will let my spiritual gifts sit on a shelf unused. And as a result, the body of Christ is damaged because that gift was sovereignly distributed 
by Jesus Christ because there's someone in the context of this church that needs your spiritual gifting applied to their life. And I'll make another observation for you. The American church, and perhaps this is true around the world, I'm only familiar with the American church and the church in India where we've done some mission trips, okay? And I would not accuse them of what I'm going to address. The American church tends to be very consumer-driven. Many people come to church as consumers and never make a difference, never serve, never get involved in affecting, impacting, and changing someone else's life. Folks, here's what I want you to know. God has called you to something much more glorious than simply eating at his church. He has called you to be someone who employs their gifts and makes a difference in people's lives. The vision he has for you and for your life through his gifting is glorious and powerful. And he wants you to enjoy it on a regular basis. You know, I was here yesterday. And I, I, I don't come here and study. I have an office set up at home. But there was an invasion at our house this week. It wasn't COVID. It wasn't any varmints of any kind. It was grandkids. And... <laughs> Suddenly, I had a need, all right, for quiet. And with three grandchildren, one of whom is six, well, nine months old, uh, one's three and one's five, there is no rest. There's not. So I came out of here, and I was in the uh, conference room. I've never come in this building for the purpose of being here for a while and not locked the front door. Okay, understand? Like when I come in, I always lock the front door. Okay, not because I'm paranoid; I'm just afraid. Okay, <laughs> I'm sitting in that conference room over there studying for today, and as I'm doing that, I hear this. I'm like, "What is that?" And I realized there was someone standing at the door. I said to that person, I said, you know, I'm, I'm like never here. It was someone that had a need that, Lord willing, we could address. I said, well, let's go sit up front. So we went out and we sat up front. Got talking with that person. And as they were talking with me, I, in my mind, I saw the face of a person that could help them who has a very different experience than I have, who has a completely different set of giftings than I have. And I'm going to tell you what I did. In my mind, as I was talking to this person, I did a quick analysis. If I called that person and they're available, would they interrupt their schedule to make a difference in someone's life? That's what I thought. And when I thought about the person, I said, I know if they're free, they will come. So I made a phone call. Got permission from the person I was talking to. I said, there's someone here that they have a need. And I think you're probably willing to meet that need. Can you come? And they said, yeah. I'll come. You know why I called that person? Because I don't have the specific gifting that was needed in that situation. You know why? Because that's not how God built the body of Christ. 
He built the body of Christ so that there are people that Sandy Wagner could touch that Tim Hoff can never reach. There are people that my wife can reach and her and I are as like and are relating to people in certain ways, like as, as black and white, as different as you could possibly be. Remember sitting in a situation with her where she, in a baptism interview, she, she uh, spoke up and was sharing something and I thought, well, that's probably not real helpful. I did, just telling you. And it lit this lady's face up because my wife has a different approach than I have. And her approach is as useful to God as mine is. God gives us gifts so that his body can be strengthened. Here's the question. Are you a consumer or are you a servant? Do you make time in your life for the expression of your God-given capacities to make a difference in the life of someone who is struggling, someone who's hurting, someone who's in need, which I'm going to tell you something. That's all of us at some point. All of us need the ministry of others in the church. There are numerous people in this church who have made a specific impact on my life because of the gifting and personality and, 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 and approach that God has gifted them with in situations where I would be a complete mess. Thank God sometimes he gives the wisdom to say, you know what, for this you need this person who has this gift, who will be much better in this situation than you. I always say to, you, to, to folks within the context of our church, people will say, oh, pastor, the other day I was sitting at lunch and this guy asked me this question, and man, I wished you were there. You know, my response to that is, <laughs> God didn't put me there. He put you there. And he's gifted you to do everything that he puts in front of you. You don't need to call someone. Step out in faith. Trust the enablement that God has given you to do the work that he puts in front of you. Don't simply consume. Find a way to see those gifts exercised for the benefit of the body of Christ as a whole. And the only way that can happen, please understand this, the only way that can happen is in the context of relationships. You cannot exercise spiritual gifts outside of relationships. They are all highly relational. They all make us effective in relating to each other and serving each other and helping each other grow. The reason he gives pastors and teachers is so that you can hear the word of God and then put it into practice in your life together so that we can, as Paul says here, be equipped for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. By whom? Not by pastors only, but by gifted leaders and gifted people. So that we, you and I, and the pastoral team and the leadership team, we are all mutually essential. And what God is doing. So what's the goal? To what end does God give these gifts? To what end does God call us to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Verse 14. It says this. After we have become mature. And after we have attained to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 13. Then... 
we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunningness of crafty people in deceitful scheming. Instead, we will be people speaking the truth in love. And as we do that, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, even Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. That's every part, every gifted person. Okay? Everybody doing their part grows and it builds itself in love as each individual part does the work that God has called it to do. Okay, that's a beautiful vision of the church. That it is made up of a multitude of people. And that the focus is not on the size of the church, but it's on the health of the church. How well are we doing in serving each other and meeting the needs that are present in the context of our church and in our community? How well are we doing with that? That's the question. Not how many people were out on Sunday. But how many people are affecting each other's lives? And spurring each other on to love and good works. How many of us are doing that? Well, it's interesting in verse 14 that Paul uses an analogy that I think is somewhat helpful. He says, then you will no longer be infants. And the idea of infants simply means people in need of growth. Here's the truth. Everybody in the context of church life is in need of progress. So 1 Peter 2.1 says, like new more babes crave the milk of the word that by it you may grow, right? So we all come into the body of Christ in need of growth. And over the years, we're in need of receiving more and more of the word of God so that we can grow. It's interesting, the analogy that he uses here, that we will no longer be infants. Spent most of the week, as I said, with our grandkids. I love them. They are so darn cute. I don't understand them. Right? Because this text says, toss like the wind, or I'm sorry, toss like waves, blown by wind. Okay? And I'm like, yeah, that's what I've been experiencing this week. I mean, I've loved it, but I can't say it's without tension or without difficulty and struggle. The idea of being tossed by waves simply means to be emotionally unstable, easily triggered. At the drop of a hat. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that, that's kids. That's, that's what they do without explanation. Total smile and happy and then lose it. And you don't know what happened. It's what children are like. A sign of growth is what? Growing to emotional stability, right? That's a, that's a sign of growth. Blown by the wind. This is the idea of not perceptive, not discerning, naive. Okay? When you are around little kids, one of the things you learn is that they would eat cookies for every meal. Okay? They, like, they don't discern that, no, I need the green stuff. I need the stuff I don't necessarily like. All of that is part of becoming. They don't have that discernment. Same thing is true spiritually. When someone first comes to Christ, it's critical that you get in a church where you hear the word of God, where you hear teaching from the word of God, where God's word is taught and it's, it begins to inform and give discernment and stabilization. You can trick children into believing anything. 
And I, I play with the grandkids all the time in the realm of the imagination, right? I can get them to believe anything. They're naive. That's the way kids are. But as you grow up, hopefully you begin to discern what's real and what's an imaginatory. What makes a difference and what doesn't. What counts and what doesn't. That's the idea here, that, that we are no longer unstable. And one other thought about children is this. Children tend to be very self-centered, very selfish. They think that everything is theirs, okay? It's just the nature of children. They don't understand the concept of caring about others and sharing with others and blessing others. They want it for me, right? That's just that's the nature of kids, God's goal is that in the church, we would move from instability to stability and maturity emotionally, that we would become discerning people who were able to make a difference in one another's lives because we actually now care about the people that God has called us into community with. So the goal of the, of the call and the goal of the resources that God gives is so that we can stabilize and become mature as the people of God, able to do the work that God has so gloriously and powerfully called us to do. So the question I would ask you this morning is, are you growing? Okay, are you, are you, are you, are, as you look back over last year and you move into this new year, can you identify this idea of progress, not perfection? Pers the, the, the pursuit of perfection will destroy you. But progress is something that will encourage you. Okay, it won't give pride. It'll just be, yes, by God's grace, I was here, now I'm here. What are the things that God can use me to do? Who are the lives that I can impact this year coming? And you begin to move from where you are to where God wants you to be. This text implies that there's growth, that I was an infant, but I'm growing up, right? It should be the goal of every parent is that I'm, I, 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 God blesses us with infants. We raise them to be people that are self-sustaining and pay taxes so one day I can retire and they can pay my social security, right? That's, that's the goal, okay? Get out on your own. Take responsibility for your life. That's normal. And that's what should happen in the context of church life. Where the person that was new and, and feeding on biblical truth as an infant all of a sudden is able to communicate that truth to someone else for the glory of God. That's beauty. They get a passion, a burden to serve a segment of the community, to help individuals that are struggling, and they begin to step up and say, you know what, I want God to use me. That's when the church becomes the light that God has called it to be. <clears throat> and then ver and in verse 15, he says this. Instead of being unstable, we become people who speak the truth in love. People who speak the truth of God's word into people's lives that they desperately need to hear but maybe don't want to hear. Folks, that's the hard part, isn't it? Sometimes I want people to like me so much that I struggle with telling them what they need to hear because I'm innately selfish. I want to know what they think of me after the encounter so I hold back from them what they desperately need to hear. So... Love without truth has no message. It has nothing to say. But truth without love is abrasive and destructive. You know, sometimes people say, well, I just, I just tell them what I'm thinking. Well, you know what God calls us to do? He calls us to truth each other 
in love. In love means this. I am concerned about Sandy's benefit. So when I share with Sandy the word of criticism that I have for her, okay, my spirit is not to pull her down or to degrade her. It's to build her up and encourage her because I love her. Does that make sense? So the, the aim, speak the truth, but do it in love. Do it in a way that is most abundantly helpful. That's the person of Christ. Take my yoke upon me. I am meek and gentle in spirit. And you'll find rest for your souls. It's the heart of Jesus. It's what God wants for us and wants from us. Verse 16, finish this out. It says, from him, the whole body joined together and held by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Folks, I want you to let that vision settle in. What if I was part of a church in which everyone cared about others? You know what I said to myself? I'm like, wow. And I thank God, in the context of our our church life, a lot of that happens, and I'm thankful for that. Here's what Paul says, you're doing it, I encourage you to do it more and more. Okay? Engage in each other's lives. This, This whole pursuit in verse 16 of maturity and building itself up in love cannot happen apart from relationships. The assumption of this text is that we're living life together. That we're caring for each other and making a difference. No growth can happen in isolation. God did not call you, understand this, God did not call you into a private relationship with himself. This is never the way the gospel works. Remember when Jesus healed the demoniac of Gadara? He said, Jesus, I want to go with you. You know what Jesus said? Go and tell them what I've done for you. Well, I don't know a whole lot. It's okay. Go tell them what I did for you and watch what God will do. Okay? Take the little bit that God has given you and begin to communicate it in the context of relationships and watch as the body of Christ is built up, becomes stable, becomes mature, and and maximizes its impact in the world that God has called us to live in. Here's three closing thoughts. No directive in this text can be fulfilled in isolation. In other words, I cannot, sitting in my house, obey this passage of Scripture by myself. Okay? Let that that settle in, okay? Sometimes that's an illuminating fact for people, but I get it. I live in a very private country, right, where we're very individualistic. God has called us to community. And I can't obey God in isolation because most of the commands he gives me, particularly every command in this text, relates to helping others. And I can't do that in isolation. Okay? Uh, You know, as a pastoral team, with the whole COVID thing, okay? You know what my biggest fear is? Isolation. I mean, not personally, But my biggest fear for people is that we drift off into isolation. My biggest fear as a pastor is that I become disconnected. Okay? It it, it just starts to feel so strange. Because God has called us to be part of a body, to be part of a family, 
So be careful as you work through, and I understand the need for caution. I completely get it. My heart is breaking for some people right now who are struggling. Don't let it become an excuse to live a life that does not reflect God's call to life together. Okay? That's just a pastoral encouragement. Second thing is this. Don't be surprised or devastated or put off when people let you down. When people around you struggle. This text implies what? That there is always this need for progress, which implies that there are times when Tim Hoff is going to fail and I'm going to let you down. There are times when you're going to fail and let someone else in the context of your church life down. Don't let that blow you away. This text is all about the fact that God's aim is to take us from where we are by his grace and through his church to get you to where he wants you to be. Okay, and in that whole process, there are struggles, there are failures. Anybody that's 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 excelled in in athletics at at a very high level knows that you do it over and over and over again. And you work through failure and frustration and brokenness and you finally get it. That's why it is in the church. That's why it is in the church. We're working together. Sometimes we will frustrate each other. Sometimes we will wound, damage, hurt, forget each other. It happens. Don't let that blow you away. The goal is progress, not perfection. Our perfection is found in Christ. Praise God. And all of what this text proclaims is possible because of verses 8 and 9. I skipped them earlier. Just touch on these real quick. Okay? It talks about the ascension of Christ, the ascension, which assumes the descension which leads to the ascension. Okay, it's the way this text works. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended. Why did Christ descend? We just celebrated this in Christmas, right? His descension was him being wrapped in flesh, God as a child in a manger, growing up, living a perfect life, to stand in our place on Calvary's cross, to take the hit that we deserved so that we do not have to pay that price for our sins so that we could be forgiven and set free. Folks, nothing will drive unity in the church like an understanding of the gospel. And Paul anchors this whole discussion in this somewhat obscure text, but powerful text. And that, and that is the, that, that the one who ascended is the one who first descended. And the motivation there is walk in humility, be like Christ. Walk low like he walked. And following that, he'll take you into glory. Folks, that's the calling that we have. So if in this life I experience struggle and brokenness and disappointment in the context of my church life, what do we need to remember? There is a glorious day coming. The one who descended also ascended. The one who humbles himself, the Bible says, God will exalt. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And when God gives you a humble heart, you will begin to care about others around you. And you will begin to get focused on the gifting that God has given you to build each other up for his glory. May God help us as we go into this new year to remember that Jesus Christ came to be our ransom, though he was king of all. That his humility enabled our freedom from sin through the work of the cross 
which reminds us that no one in the context of our church life is beyond hope. No one is too broken. No one is too lost. Christ can forgive and cleanse you by his shed blood. He can rebuild your life as a result of his humility, his brokenness, his sacrifice on Calvary's cross. You can be forgiven. You can be freed from shame. You can be changed. And you can be made part of the family of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that so clearly rings forth from it. Lord, how desperately we need to know these truths. And I pray, God, that as we contemplate uh, these verses of scripture that we will we will see this grand vision that the apostle paul had of what the church was to be a body in which every part is doing its part until we all reach the fullness of what you have called us to be so lord we start at different places this morning some brand new in christ some years in christ some in between lord give us a vision of what you want us to be by your spirit so that we can make the maximum difference in our calling in this community for your glory and for the exaltation of your name through the ministry of the chapel here. God, use us. Fill us with your spirit. Remind us of the gifts that you've given us so that we will be utterly dependent upon you and willing to serve one another until the day that you return, Lord Jesus, or till you take us home. Blessings over those in our church family that are struggling today, God, we pray. Healing over them in Jesus' name and in our fellowship right now, exaltation of Christ and progress, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for coming this morning. We do not have a closing song.